Thank you, Daniel. Thank you uh, for having us. Thank you for the introduction. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Um, I would like to say a few introductory words on the, um, on the principles and what we're going to be presenting today. First, um, this is the, what probably will be, rather, the culmination of a project that started in 2010 at the University of uh, Amsterdam, uh, started as an ESC project. Uh, which was led by Professor uh, André Nolkemper. Um, in the five years that it was running in Amsterdam, I, I spent three, three of them in, as, a, as a postdoctoral researcher there. And we managed to publish uh, two edited, three rather, uh, edited collections, uh, one special issue in the journal, a number of papers circulating around various journals. Uh, there's been a lot of work uh, by many people uh, that were working in the project. It was uh, Andrea, myself, and then six uh, PhD students. Uh, we held workshops, conferences, the lot. But at some point, we realized that we needed to somehow uh, distill everything we learned uh, during those years into a comprehensive uh, list and uh, lists in international law or other articles or principles. Uh, so we started, I think it was 2015, uh, 2015 started uh, drafting uh, the principles on shared responsibility. Um, the, uh, the, the committee that is uh, drafting those principles that has been doing that for the past three years uh, is led again by Professor Nolkemper, Jean, myself, and uh, Marcos Caravies. Uh, I've been working on this uh, project for the past three years quite uh, systematically. We've exchanged, uh, exchanged views a lot among ourselves. We have oftentimes forgotten what we've agreed upon and then come back to it and then disagree again and open up issues that we thought uh, that we have moved past them and something comes up again and then you revisit uh, the draft and it's six pages long. Imagine if it would be something uh, <clears throat> more substantive. Uh, but we decided uh, at some point in January that, or December even, that it's time for us to stop this um, and start uh, trying to get some um, input and discussion on the principles in this very rudimentary draft form, this is going to change considerably uh, starting hopefully today after the discussion that we're going to have together here and start getting an outsider's perspective on this. And this is what today's uh, presentation uh, is hoping to achieve, namely to uh, Jean and myself be uh, short, uh, concise, to the point, do not, not talk as, uh, as much as is uh, customary in this uh, setting and uh, allow uh, quite a bit of time for discussion. Uh, we want to hear you uh, more uh, than we want to uh, speak uh, on the principles ourselves. 
Um, this, by way of introduction, Jean, you can, I think, should. Uh, yeah, maybe. Th thanks for for this very useful sketch of the of the background and how we we got here. Uh, so indeed, the idea is to transpose uh, five years of scholarly research into operational principles, into principles that can be used by 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 practitioners. Uh, and so that that's the main aim. And and I must say that the the exercise has been very very time-consuming, but also very humbling in the sense that uh, we, we came to respect the ILC, the International Commission, a bit more, and we came to appreciate that actually codifying or drafting is, is probably more difficult and intricate that, than one thinks. And, and so we, I think for the future, one of the lessons is that we'll probably refrain from our usual ILC bashing in the, in the, in the years to come, because it has, it has been very, very humbling, it's been very, very difficult. Um, so let me just, before we go through the, the principles, and, and again, uh, we, we, we won't be exhaustive here because the purpose is to, to get your feedback, um, let me just sketch a few of the main uh, methodological and conceptual choices we, we made at the start of this, uh, of this exercise, which, which again is meant to, uh, to transpose some scholarly findings into operational principles. Well, the, let me just sketch out three choices we, we made. Uh, the first one is, is, and this is just what I've said, we, is the target. The target is not scholars, academics, and people researching uh, issues of responsibility. No, the, the target of this of these exercise and of these principles are judges and practitioners. Those people who are confronted with uh, issues of shared responsibility. Um, judges, practitioners, but, but, but anyone involved in, in, in the business of, of legal argumentation about responsibility. And so that's the target. So this is not a scholarly exercise. Uh, this is not a scholarly exercise. Uh, it comes with, of course, these principles come with, a com with commentaries, but th this, this is not scholarly work. Um, so that's, that's the, first, the first point I, I want to make. Uh, We're we aiming at operational principles for practitioners, uh, and, and obviously including international courts. Um, second, uh, the second choice we made is that we decided not to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we have had uh, principles on, on, on responsibility in international law for, for hundreds of years. Uh, of course, all this was, was codified only in, in, in 2001, 2011. But, but still, we, we have had this language and these categories for uh, breach, wrongful act, circumstances precluding wrongfulness for for almost a century, and, and, and we decided that there was no point reinventing all these categories. So, so, so we decided to be a bit obedient, and, and we drafted these principles using the, the categories that have been codified and designed by the International Law Commission in 2001-2011. So we do articulate these principles in terms of, of breach, in terms of wrongfulness, in terms of circumstances including wrongfulness, in terms of countermeasures, and so on and so on. Uh, attribution, attribution of conduct, attribution of responsibility. So, so we didn't reinvent the wheel. We do use the, the, the categories of the LC, and you will also uh, notice that we, the, our principles are structures in accordance with the structure of the, the Articles on Civil Responsibility 2001. So determination of responsibility, content of responsibility, it's the same structure. Uh, so in that sense, we are, um, we are following the, the categories that have, we've, we've inherited from the LC. Oh, that doesn't mean that uh, we, 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 we're happy with these, with these categories. We, we do think that many of the, 
the, the, these, the choices made by the LC are problematic. Uh, the very notion of breach, uh, the, 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 the idea of wrongfulness, they, they are problematic. However, we thought this is not the battle to, to be fought. Uh, I do think we can achieve something using the categories of the LC. Having said this, and, and, and this will uh, become obvious in a few minutes, even if we, we do resort to the, the categories of the LC, we depart from some of the choices made by the LC on a number of occasions, um, in terms of, of causation, uh, uh, in terms of, of the notion of injury, the place of injury. Uh, they are on a number of occasions we do depart from the article on state responsibility. Of course, our departure is limited to situations of shared responsibility, that is when multiple states contribute to a single injury. Uh, so our departure, or let's say our, the heretic part of our work is limited to, to situations of shared responsibility, but, but obviously in doing this, we, we do challenge some of the choices made by the LC. So that's the second choice we made. We use the language of the LC. However, that does not prevent us from uh, departing from, from the the article of state responsibility on a number of occasions. Third uh, choices, third choice I want to uh, mention here is um, the, the idea that we're not, contrary to the ILC, uh, we're not going down the route of the sources of international law. We're not using the sources narrative as the ILC does. In other words, we're not claiming uh, that this is customer international law. So we're not codifying anything. We, we're not claiming these are sources uh, for a number of reasons. First, um, because we, 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 we think that actually there's a great deal of artificiality in claiming that the rules on state responsibility are customer international law, as the LC does. Uh, very often, there is no state practice, strictly speaking. I mean, these are architectural rules which, for which there is no practice, uh, sensu stricto. So, so, so that's the first reason why we think, even in, with respect to the 2001-2011 articles on, on responsibility, it, it doesn't really work, it doesn't really make sense to speak about customer international law. Second, if we, even when it, it could, the, some of these rules could correspond to some practice and, and be the expression of customer international law, we, we don't find it necessary. Uh, we don't find it necessary to justify our choices through the sources. So, so the commentaries that come with these principles do not elaborate on at all on whether a given principle is, uh, is positive law, um, is lex lata. Um, we, we do think that the authority of these principles come from some the policy choices behind them as well as scholarship and court practice. And all this court practice and scholarship that, that support the principles that, that we've drafted is reproduced uh, and refer to in, 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 the, in the commentaries. And that's how we build the authority, rather than going down the route of customer international law. So we don't codify, um, nor do we, do, do we claim this is progressive development. We just don't use the sources narrative for the reasons I've mentioned, and, and mainly because we do think it's, it's completely artificial. I mean, when we speak about the so-called secondary rules of international law, it doesn't make much sense to justify the secondary rules of international law through secondary rules of international law themselves. I mean, we're not going to go into jurisprudential debate here. That's not the point. But, but so just to make, that's a very important choice we've made. And I know we, I'm sure you're going to criticize, you, you're going to have, and you're going to raise many, I mean, strong criticism about this. But this is a choice we, 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 
we, we stick to and, and, and for, for the reasons I've mentioned. So these are the three main conceptual choices we, we've made. Um, now it may be time to, to start going through the, the principle. Maybe you want to say a few words, uh, Elias, about the, the definitions? Um, yeah, the definitions that we've kept them, as you've seen, at a minimum because otherwise you, you just need another set of principles defining uh, the principles and it doesn't make a lot of sense. And also, if you can you see the, the text, or is it too little bit? Yeah. Uh, there's one distinction between legal persons and persons, uh, denoting in legal persons we mean only uh, states and international organizations, whereas when we mention persons, uh, it refers to any act of bearing rights and or obligations under international law. Uh, this is a methodological choice and a drafting choice because the way uh, that most principles are addressed to legal persons, so either states and international organ or international organizations, but there are a few that might be applicable also to other persons, uh, natural persons, corporations, and so on and so forth. And we need, we wanted to show the difference between the two just by uh, inserting the word le the legal before persons in the first case. Um, we don't say anything particularly uh, groundbreaking or new when it comes to injury, that it refers to the material and non-material damage done to another person. And simple conduct refers to either acts or uh, omissions. So apart from the first two, uh, A and B, uh, that have some uh, substantive uh, choices made there, the rest, the, the other two are just uh, straightforward uh, definitions of injury and, uh, and conduct. Now, if you, Jean, you want to move to uh, principle one. So principle one, uh, don't worry, we're not going to go through all principles, but, but we're just going to pick a few of them to, to, to illustrate the choices, some of the choices we've, we've made. Um, so principle one is, in a way, it's again, it, it's patterned after the ILC. We start by uh, spelling out what situations of responsibility, the situation of responsibility we're looking at. But we are looking at a situation of shared responsibility. That is when multiple actors, multiple legal persons, we mean state and international organizations, contribute to a single injury to another person. Huh? And to, a, to another person, which can be uh, well, a human being, it doesn't need to be a... Uh, the, the, the injured person is not necessarily a state or an international organization. However, the, the persons committing the wrongful act and contributing to the injury are, strictly speaking, as Ilya said, states and internationalization. So in that sense, we've, we follow the, the, the International Commission. We look at the responsibility of states and internationalizations. And we're looking at, more specifically, at situations where states and internationalizations uh, contribute to a single injury of a third person through the commission of a wrongful act. Here, too, you see that we design responsibility like the LC that is based on a breached that is attri attributable to a legal subject. So breach attribution, mean that, that constitute a wrongful act according to the LC vocabulary, is a condition for uh, shared responsibility arise. However, it's a condition but not a sufficient one because there must also be a contribution to the injury. And here, it's already a departure from the article of state responsibility, which, strictly speaking, do not require an injury. Of course, there is necessity of an injury for uh, for reparation to arise, but, but not for responsibility to arise. And here, you see that's a fundamental paradigmatic change from, from the LC articles uh, 
on stage responsibility that contribution to injury is a condition of responsibility. So you must have a wrongful act by multiple actors, and you must have an injury. Right? By this, this wrongful act must contribute, must lead to an injury. So to a large extent, we follow the LC, but we add a condition, which is a contribution to the, to the injury. Um, so that's the general principle. There is shared responsibility where multiple states or internationalizations commit a wrongful act and contribute to an injury to a third person. So these are situations which are actually quite common. Climate change. States together do contribute to a damage to the environment. And, and, and this damage, uh, isn't, there is an injury. Um, peacekeeping <coughs> situations. Um, running uh, the, the, the Euro tunnel by, I mean, France and the UK running the Euro tunnel together. And, and the, the tunnel is shut and, and the Euro tunnel uh, undergoes and, and suffers an injury. So these are very, very common situations. Uh, several states and organizations administering a territory together. Again, very common situations which we are all familiar with. So that's what we have in mind, concretely. Well, in this situation, if multiple actors uh, do together you know, commit a wrongful act and contribute and, 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 and cause an injury, we have a situation of shared responsibility to which these principles apply. And so that's principle one, uh, uh, defining the scope of, of these principles. Um, like the, the, the International Commission, we do reserve the possibility of, of responsibility. Um, I would say, and I know Ilias will, might disagree with that wording, and it's a situation short of a wrongful act. And that's a situation of attribution of responsibility, which, which, which have been provided for in the Articles of 2001-2011. Uh, that's coercion, that's control, that's aid and assistance. You can also have a shared responsibility when one of this, these actors contributing to the single injury is not itself uh, the author of the wrongful act, but has, to, in a way or in another, contributed to that, to that wrongful act. So that's what is meant by uh, the, the situation uh, uh, mentioned in, in Chapter 3. But we'll, we'll come back to that. It's aid and assistance, coercion, and these sorts of, of situations, which, as you know, is an adjustment uh, created by the International Commission in the 1970s uh, uh, to, uh, in a way, broaden the scope of responsibility because they realized, as you know, that just attribution of conduct and, and breach would be too narrow. It would not allow the capture of, of as many situations as was desirable, and that's why they created attribution of, of responsibility, what, what people, some people call indirect responsibility. We do include this in the, in the project. So that's, that's principle one. Maybe let's, a word on principle four, maybe, the, the contribution to the injury, which is, which is, as you know, the condition which we have added. And so that's, uh, that's novel, that, that's innovative. Um, and, and, and obviously it adds something to the, to the paradigmatic choices made by, by the LC. Ilias, you want to say something about Yes. This? Contribution to the injury is uh, a smooth way, or not so smooth way to say causation. Uh, we wanted to avoid the term uh, because it would strike someone who read it as a bit, I don't know, uh, maybe uh, bold. Uh, contribution is, but contribution essentially means the same thing. Um, now, 
here we came up, we were faced with the problem of a dearth of doctrine, uh, be it scholarly or uh, judicial decisions. We don't have in international, at least this is what we think, um, enough materials to guide us towards uh, an appropriate test. Uh, we don't, uh, the, international, the International Court of Justice or the European Court of Human Rights, and you can name either, either tribunals, uh, the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, mixed claims commissions, what have you, have not managed, or they haven't even tried to come up with um, a, a basic causal test to be used in international law. Nor do we have very clear uh, tests that are used in human rights, for example, or investment arbitration. Again, there is the different tests applicable in different situations. Problem being with all these uh, cases that uh, the court, usually the courts that claim to apply, uh, that, that apply causal tests in their decision or their reasoning, they claim that that test is the, is the uh, definitive one in international law, which makes the situation even more bizarre. So here essentially we're faced with a, with a policy choice. We had uh, a scenario which is multiple actors contributing towards a single harmful outcome. And we had to come up with a test or look for a test that uh, would be very inclusive. By inclusive, I mean that it would capture the conduct of as many actors as possible. That, in turn, uh, raises a problem because if, if a test is very inclusive, then you end up probably ha having. Uh, uh, bringing actors within the purview of, of the principles that probably are not responsible. And that um, is usually also in domestic law is mitigated through uh, the development of the concept of the scope of responsibility. So the first uh, paragraph of principle four adopts a version of the test uh, that uh, Hart and Honoré had uh, come up with uh, in the book in Causation in the Law. It has been since widely discussed and for the most part uh, favorably uh, seen by a number of authors and has been applied in, in, in a number of cases by mixed claims commissions. Uh, the European Court of Human Rights applies a version uh, of that test in some cases, uh, which is uh, the conduct has to be one of the conditions jointly sufficient for the occurrence of the injury. Uh, as opposed uh, to the bad four test, this works really well in uh, cases where the injury is overdetermined. That means the injury is being, has come about uh, by more than one uh, sources. Shared responsibility is a quintessential uh, case uh, where you have this happening. You have multiple actors by definition. Uh, so you need an inclusive test like this. The second paragraph is dealing um, with uh, the attempt to, after having included uh, as many uh, actors as possible, to narrow down the scope of responsibility to those who are actually legally responsible for it. But this is not a causal test. It is usually the notions referred to in paragraph two are being mistaken for being causal notions, but in fact they are not. They are policy choices made by courts or uh, by the civil code or the jurisprudence, you know, the, the, the person who promulgates uh, the law. So. We say that in determining whether a legal person that has contributed to the injury will be responsible for such contribution, the nature and contents of the international obligation that is breached, the proximity of the contribution to the injury, 
and the reasonable foreseeability of that shall be taken into account. So we also explicitly say and, and um, provide for concepts that the judge might take into account where uh, he's making um, the, uh, after, he has, after he has applied the causal test and tries to define the scope of responsibility and see whether every person, every legal person that falls under paragraph one can be held responsible. So just fulfilling the criteria of paragraph one of principle four doesn't mean that you're responsible. Paragraph two, also the concepts and notions therein play uh, a part. Uh, we can develop uh, these ideas and thoughts later on when we um, take questions. John? So if you will, one multiple attribution. So I mean, for, when it comes to contribution to injury and causation, that's that's again an, an area where where we innovate compared to the uh, to the LC, and and you know that the LC decided not to 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 grapple with this with this issue, uh, even if it's it's everywhere in in the article on state responsibility. But, but we make it explicit, and that contribution to injury is a constitutive element of of, of responsibility. Maybe a word on attribution. Yeah. Principle six is the only uh, we don't we don't depart on the on the on the concept of uh, of attribution for, as as it was developed by the ALC at all. I think uh, we think that it works uh, perfectly well. There's no reason to uh, to tweak it or, or change it. Uh, we need we felt the need to add uh, principle six only to um, uh, render explicit that we can have multiple attribution. Uh, stemming from a single course of conduct and we had in mind uh, cases like the Eurotunnel uh, where you have a joint um, you have a joint organ on Nauru. Nauru as well uh, cases like that where you have a joint organ taking uh, adopting a, s a single course of conduct and then attribution is being spread out to the constituent parts of that uh, organ but there's nothing uh, more to it I think no. it just we felt the need that this had to be made explicit in the principles in the context of shared responsibility. Yeah, yeah so as far as attribution of conduct is, is concerned, we, we, we just made explicit things which are already in the, in the law of international responsibility. Um, however, we innovate much more when it comes to these special categories invented by the LC in the 1970s, which is attribution of, of responsibility or indirect responsibility, as some people call it, uh, or responsibility, and that's the wording of the LC, in connection with an internationally wrongful act of another <coughs> legal person. Uh, so that's, that's Article uh, 16, 17, 18 in the Article of Responsibility. Uh, responsibility in connection with the internationally wrongful act of another person. That is, situations where uh, a legal person, a, a state or an international organization, is responsible even if the main, the, 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 the main breach is not attributable to that person. So the conduct the wrongful conduct is not the conduct of that person, but that person is nonetheless responsible. And so that's the special category uh, created by the LC to adjust the, the scope of, of, of the articles of responsibility. Well, here we do take that into account and we do acknowledge that there might be responsibility in, in such situations, even if the legal person's concerned is not the author of the conduct. And here we do make very significant departures from the articles on state responsibility and the articles on the responsibility of internationalizations. Um, and we, these departures are, are actually quite 
uh, numerous um, and, and, and substantive. Um, so first, we, when, so we, we have a series of, of, uh, of situations of, of attribution of responsibility, the first one being, the, in a way, the most common one, which is aid and assistance, complicity, Article 16 is in the Article on, on State Responsibility. Um, well, we do recognize that complicity may lead to situation of shared responsibility. However, what we have done is that we have played down the subjective element, or we have played down the, requi the subjective requirement of knowledge of the circumstances precluding wrongfulness. Uh, so, sorry, uh, knowledge of the circumstances of the wrongful act. Uh, or you know that there is ambiguity in the Articles on State Responsibility because the commentary uh, refers to intent, uh, whereas the Articles refer to just knowledge. We, for complicity, we just use actually a lower threshold, which is constructive knowledge. You should have known that your behavior would lead to a, a wrongful conduct. So we play down. It's, we, we take the, 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 the criterion of constructive knowledge. You should have known. So for shared responsibility, complicity comes with a lower threshold in terms of subjective element, in terms of knowledge. So that's a, a significant departure uh, from the ILC in terms of, uh, with respect to aid and assistance. We've created a new situation of attribution of responsibility, which is concerted action. Uh, so concerted action. That's the scenario of uh, NATO states uh, bombing uh, the former Yugoslavia, bombing Serbia. Um, so it's a special category for which um, we require actually a much, there is a higher threshold in terms of, of of involvement. You must be actively participating in, uh, in the conduct. So it's higher than, 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 it's a higher material element than complicity. And there's also a higher subjective element because here constructive knowledge is not sufficient. You must have knowledge that by bombing Belgrade you are actually committing a, a, a wrongful act. So, so it's a special category, which a special attribution of responsibility category which we've created. Um, which, which obviously raises the question um, about whether it overlaps with, with aid and assistance, with complicity. And here we are completely transparent in the sense that we acknowledge, like the ILC does actually, that all these situations overlap with one another. What can be control can also be aid and assistance. What can be concerted action can also be control. Um, however, we have multiplied these categories to, to increase the, the net through which you capture a situation of shared responsibility. So uh, we have this, this, this category of concerted action because we think that not everything is captured by aid and assistance or control. Um, or control is the third, uh, the third one, principle, um, uh, principle nine. Uh, or control is, is something which you find in the article on, on state responsibility, in the articles on, on the responsibility of international organizations. I think it's article 17. Uh, or Article 18, um, we, we, have, uh, we do acknowledge that control can lead to, to shared responsibility. But here, again, we do have uh, a substantive departure in the sense that we do include normative control. And that's paragraph two. If you control another person, um, and it can be uh, in, in, in many different ways. So it's a very all-embracing all encapsulating category. Right? We say direction and control, which is a reference to the ILC category, or any th other form of control. Uh, and that means, as we, we, we explain in the commentary, 
that we do include normative control. Uh, for instance, control by the Security Council. We do include control by normative control. Uh, and internationalizations having normative control on the action of, of, of states. The internationalizations may be responsible. Uh, so, so here there is a clear departure um, from the LC. There is also another departure, is that for situation of control, we do waive the subjective element. Uh, and that's paragraph three, irrespective of whether that person had knowledge of the circumstances of the wrongful act. Uh, so here we waive completely the, the, the subjective requirement. Uh, I must say that originally we had waived the subjective element for all situations of attribution of responsibility. Uh, so, so a year ago we went as far as just waiving completely the subjective element. And, and the thing is, is because it, it came from a suspicion towards this subjective element and this, um, the, the, the artificiality of, of, of such a requirement and the idea that states must have knowledge. Uh, we, we always found that this sort of anthropomorphic construction of states having knowledge was, was, it was very artificial and, and in a way very, very arbitrary. However, we, we later realized that by waiving completely this requirement, we, we were actually extending the scope of shared responsibility too much. So that's why we've kept the subjective requirement for the two first categories, aid and assistance, and concerted action. But we're still waiving it. We're still uh, actually undoing it completely for, for the situation of a control, which is, in a way, the residual category, right? because its control is, is, is defined very broadly. And here, you don't have the requirement of substantive, uh, you don't have the requirement of, of subjective uh, knowledge. Uh, as, as you find it in the Articles on the Responsibility, Articles on the Responsibility of Internationalizations. Um, so that's the residual category, control. Uh, if you control another actors into committing a wrongful act, you will share responsibility. Um, now this principle is actually extrapolated in principle 10 and 11, which are in a way two uh, applica specific applications of, of control. You have decisions of internationalizations. Decision of an IO can be a form of control when the decision binds the member states and lead the member states to commit a wrongful act and contribute to an injury. Uh, that, that's actually not uh, revolutionary because it is in the Articles on the Responsibility of Internationalizations. However, here we are more restrictive in the sense that the decision must be binding on member states. We exclude authorization. Uh, so the decision require member states or other internationalizations to commit that act. So mere authorization, as in the article on the two, 2011 articles, is not sufficient. So here we're more restrictive than the LC. But that's one extrapolation of control. It's, it's one illustration of what control is. Um, same with principle 11, which is, I appreciate, very, very contentious. And, 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 and I know we're going we're gonna to have a hard time defending that one. Uh, but a, a form of control is the voting. Um, voting in an internationalization can be a control, a form of control, and can lead to shared responsibility. Uh, you know it's been very, very uh, controversial in the literature. Some authors in the literature have said that control, uh, sorry, voting can be a form of complicity. We go further than this. We don't say voting in an internationalization for, uh, for, for a decision that lead to, to, say, a humanitarian catastrophe is complicity, we say, no, it's a situation of attribution of, of, of responsibility. Uh, it's a situation of indirect responsibility. Uh, the, the LC said nothing about this, 
and this is something which is found in literature, we go quite far. We appreciate this is very progressive. Um, the, the rationale behind it, the policy rationale behind this is that states should be more careful when voting for a decision within uh, an internationalization. Uh, they should take greater care uh, with, with respect to, and they should double check uh, the, the, the consequences of the decisions they're voting for. Um, so that's, that's a situation of attribution of responsibility that can lead to, to shared responsibility. So voting can lead to responsibility. Um, this is progressive. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm sure some of you will, will raise their, their eyebrows, uh, uh, but, but that's something we, we've decided to, to, to include. So, so these are uh, the, the, the different situations where you can be responsible, you can share responsibility, even if you're not the main author of the act leading to the, to the, to the injury. And so we follow this, here we follow the structure of the ILC, which, as you know, created that category, but however, we, we do adjust the, 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 the categories of the LC uh, quite, quite significantly. So moving on, maybe to implementation. I would think that we're moving the content better. So now <coughs> the content of responsibility, basically, we're talking about reparation. Here there are a few things that uh, um, can be seen as uh, departing from uh, the ILC. Well, the first, we have principle 15. It's an obligation of cessation and non-repetition. Essentially repeats what uh, the ILC uh, articles are saying. Um, and, a, a, and an umbrella provision, which is, you can't see that, but it's principle 16, reparation by plurality of responsible persons, just setting out the general obligation uh, to provide reparation. But then, uh, we actually have uh, taken the two categories that you can find in the commentary of the ILC articles on reparation, the distinction between divisible and indivisible injury. Um, having already uh, put forth uh, a detailed article on uh, principle, sorry, uh, on contribution, that means causation, we felt more comfortable about bringing this to the fore instead of dropping it into the, uh, uh, to the commentary because uh, principle four, which uh, deals with causation, is also very pertinent when it comes to reparation and how you go about determining whether the, the injury is divisible uh, or uh, indivisible. Principle 17 is pretty much straightforward. Proportion of the contribution to the injury cannot be determined. Each person is obliged to provide reparation in proportion to its contribution. All right? Principle 18, sorry, this is a different numbering, huh? for some reason, or not, no. Principle 18, uh, dealing with indivisible injury, uh, takes a step further from, uh, further than the, than the articles of the ILC, in that it puts forth a case for joint and several liability. Um, because it reads that each uh, uh, wrongdoing uh, actor, each wrongdoing legal person must provide for reparation, then that uh, the, the principle is applicable no matter whether the wrongdoing actors have committed the same or, or different uh, separate uh, wrongful acts. 
And we also have included the, that the injured person may not recover by way of reparation more than the damage that he has suffered. Now, the question is whether uh, the fifth paragraph uh, can be said to have to consist of, uh, of uh, we can see the fifth paragraph in, in, in the practice uh, of states and international organizations, which says the person having provided full reparation in accordance with paragraph one has a right of recourse against all other responsible persons who contributed to the injury. Now, the question is, based on what? There is no clear legal principle in international law that provides for a legal basis to one of the wrongdoing actors that has paid full reparation to go out after uh, the other uh, wrongdoing actors. Um, we can come up with a number of ideas, maybe uh, general principle of unjust enrichment and so on and so forth. The, the point is that we feel that we cannot have a complete uh, set of principles on shared responsibility without addressing this issue. By avoiding it, we gain nothing. There's no point in it. It's very important. So we decided uh, to take a step and just put it out there and see uh, how, what reactions we get and how um, this can be uh, properly justified uh, besides uh, theory, right? Um, and I think that uh, with that we should stop. Yeah, maybe, you want two to say yeah, yeah. Two, maybe two final comments, uh, very briefly, because we, we want to, to hear your, your, your anger. Um, well, as you first remark, so two final remarks. Uh, as you can hear, we, we use a pretty cryptic language. I mean, if you're not familiar with the articles on state responsibility, you, you may sound that we, we, we speak in Mandarin here. Uh, because and so it's true, during this pro these three years, sometimes we, we looked at ourselves in the mirror and, and, and wondered how we came to speak this way. So it's, it, we appreciate it's very cryptic, but it is the language of the RLC. Right? So I, I appreciate there's a bit of a... I, do, I mean, we, we, do, we do embrace the language of the RLC, and that's, that has been a conceptual choice. Because, again, we, we are aiming at uh, uh, people in practice, uh, applying the law of international responsibility. So, so uh, I, I appreciate that for some of you not familiar with the Articles of State Responsibility, this is, this, is, this is maybe a weird jargon. Second remark, you may also have realized that uh, we, we had to, to, to constantly make strategic choices. Uh, which battle to pick? Uh, and there were a number of battles which, which we decided to, 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 to leave aside. Uh, for instance, you know the old controversy on Article 54 and the safeguarding clause for countermeasures in the universal interest, uh, countermeasures for violations of our governance obligations. You know that uh, there is this without prejudice clause, which was the trick of Crawford to make the, the whole thing swallowed by states, but eventually the commentary says basically you can do it. And, and, and everybody in the scholarship said countermeasures in general interest are, are allowed. Originally, we thought having a principle on this uh, to confirm the, the, the dominant position in the scholarship, but, but eventually we, it's a battle we, we, we left aside. We think there's no point, there's no point addressing this, this issue. Everybody seems to agree, and this was confirmed by the Institute of International Law in, in, in the Krakow resolution. So, maybe, so that's a battle we didn't, we didn't pick. There were other battles we picked, obviously, as you, as you understood. But then there was a strategic decision whether we had to, to fight this battle through a self-standing principle or whether it would be something we would fight in the commentaries. Um, or sometimes we, we did make a principle, 
uh, for instance, for the, the waiving of the subjective element for attribution of responsibility, sometimes we decided to, do, to fight a battle in the commentary. For instance, countermeasures, which we haven't discussed, there is an ambiguity in the article on such responsibility, on the article on responsibility of internationalizations with respect to countermeasures, because countermeasures seems, especially when they are in the general interest, um, they seem to be possible only if the internationalizations has competence with respect to the substance of the obligation that is breached. Uh, in the, in the, so, so we disagree with this, and, and we think that if it's an, an obligation ergo omnes, all the omnes, including all internationalizations, can take countermeasures, even if the breach pertains to an obligation which is not strictly related to the area of competence. Of course, the countermeasure itself must be in the area of competence of the organization, but the, 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 the violation, the, the, the breach, or rather the obligation that is breached, does not necessarily need to fall within uh, the, uh, the, the area of competence of the, of the internationalization. This is something we decided to fight in the commentary. We didn't make a, a principle. So again, uh, these are strategic choices, and at the end of the day, the, the, the purpose is to sell it uh, and to stage authority. And, and there are, of course, millions of ways in which you stage authority. As you understand, we didn't use the sources, customer international law narrative to build authority. We build our authority differently, and, and we also build it either through new, new principles or in the commentary. Thank you for Thank your you. attention. Thank you.